0: And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Five, four, three.
1: The Kellen and Alex Show. Zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Fam, we are live. The Kellen and Alex Show. And special guest, Dr. Alex Plato. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Yeah, and you're our guinea pig first professor on the podcast. Sounds good. Our first uh, actually really professional guest. Sacrifice me. (laughs) (laughs) And we have, so this is now the fourth year I've taken a class with you. Mm -hmm. I think first one was philosophy, the human person. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was a wee freshman, uh, you know, thought I knew everything about philosophy, showed up and uh, quickly got humbled. We had quite a, like, most of the people I ended up being, like, friends with all throughout school, um, a lot of them actually were in that original Philosophy of the Human Person class. Yeah. We had Alessandro, um, I can't remember if Clem was in that class, I know Athanasius was, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it was a great intro to philosophy. Yeah. I don't know if you remember I'm much about that class. I, I remember you were in it, um, <laughs> and I remember kind of where you sat, kind of over by the window. It was the one class we were in, like, a circle. Yeah. Yeah, because that was the first thing you did. Is okay. you told everyone, okay, Maybe we're not doing like physics. the lecture style, yeah. you know,
0: yeah. desk than desk than desk. Because that's where it you inside. brought like the um, the Suma of the Suma. You brought like your copy of the Suma of the Suma. That was like my class. that was my Bible. Okay, that yeah, definitely was. Bible. Yeah, and I threw Scotus into the into the mix, kind like of threw pretty a wrench, early on. wrench in the cogs. Right. Do you know Dun Scotus Kellen? Uh so I blessed I've, blessed I've blessed Dun Scotus.
2: I've you know read a couple things, but I don't honestly really remember much about
0: any of those philosophers. because. Do you believe in the Immaculate Conception? I do. Yeah, he defended that doctrine when he it wasn't defended popular and it wasn't okay. the main position. Wow. And his arguments are the ones that were used when it was defined as a dogma. Wow. So thanks to him, the Thomists now can believe in the Immaculate Conception.
1: Mm-hmm. Which was debated for a long time, like yeah. 800 years, something yeah, like that. It was debated, yeah.
2: You know, when I, did, when I did philosophy, so I took three, I was a communications major, so I took philosophy of the human person, I did mm-hmm. metaphysics, I did ethics, and those were the three that I've done. Uh, you know, my first—the first day of philosophy class, philosophy of the human person with Dr. Symington—I got lost. <laughs> <laughs> I—he uh, was—I forget what you call it, where they do like three stanzas. It says like, if this is this, and this is this, then this means this. Like a syllogism, like uh, an argument. Syllogism, that? yeah, okay. syllogism. I got—I comp- just. I got completely lost. It was my first time. I love so. that you
0: call them stanzas though. I'm going to use that because I like the relationship between poetry and philosophy. Yeah. Like, like Thomas said, you know, mm-hmm. that they both, they both are interested in what's marvelous or wonderful.
2: Well, that was one of the biggest things, uh, you know, when I took philosophy, of the human person, I actually, I really enjoyed it. Like going through all the different philosophers and mm-hmm. things like that, getting new perspective because I've never learned anything like that before. Uh, and so I went to public school and I just never learned anything like that. Uh, when I got to metaphysics, uh, it was a lot different. there was just many different things about it that i I just didn't know, so I didn't know anything really. Um, metaphysics was really cool. I had that with dr Saray. Mm-hmm. and then I took uh ethics foundations of ethics with Dr. Cranio. Mm-hmm. That was definitely the most difficult uh philosophy I've ever had uh just because there was a lot of there was a lot of i think Plato and Aristotle and if I remember correctly, Plato was a lot more about giving just intellectual things to the learner, right? But uh, Aristotle was a lot more of, like, doing. Is that right? He was, like, believed that the way you gain, like, knowledge or put it is, like, put it into practice. That's what I'm kind of remembering correctly. That's pretty much, I don't remember (laughs) too much, but I really enjoyed, actually, the philosophy classes here just because, you know, the content was really good and the professors were great. I really wish I took a philosophy class with you. Hey. Here we are right now. Here we are. That's right. This We're is learning. your philosophy class, guys. You ready to get schooled? <laughs> get schooled by Plato <laughs> in philosophy. It was great. It was a fun time. I mean, I knew that I was going to have to do some philosophy and theology, obviously, because I'm coming to a Catholic school. Mm. Uh, but that's I really. part of the
1: core, right? That's you part had of the core. to. <clears throat> I want a choice in some yeah. ways. but-
2: Yeah. So I took ethics with Dr. Cranio in Austria. That was pretty cool. Audi Max. I miss, I miss Austria, man. Just the huge Audi Max, like 100 students. Have you there. been there, Dr. Plato? No. I really Haven't?
0: hope to be there soon, though. Yeah, you I should, know It's beautiful.
2: Maybe you could teach over there. Like, yeah, I'd love take, to. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. What's the process for that? Do you like apply to teach in Austria? Or? Yeah. You,
0: there's kind of a wait list or kind of because not all of us can go at once. Right. So we have to get kind of on a list and then we eventually can get over there. So I'd love to be over there. Oh, there's a wait list. So there's a lot yeah. of professors you want to. Well, there's enough that over. there's a list. Yeah. Okay. So what um, classes
2: are you currently teaching now? I am
0: teaching business ethics, the philosophy of community, ethics, and philosophy of the human person. So I've got four different classes but i've got two sections of person. What is business business ethics like? Is that um, like, some people think it's an oxymoron, right? Cuz you're you literally really teaching like philosophy ethics. into like a business. Well, you're teaching about the ethics of business activities. Okay. You know, so marketing, finance, <clears throat> management, all the activities that would comprise doing business or commerce. Right? So it's sort of looking at those from an ethical point of view evaluating them in terms of, you know, what are the virtues required to do it, do business well? Right, and how does business done well contribute to the common good, and when doesn't it? So, when about to take this course, or when you were you know learning
2: about these things, and so you're t- talking about teaching ethics in a business. Mm-hmm. How much of going into the, actually learning about the marketing and the finance and everything about that? How how much do you have to know about that while you're teaching Nothing. this course?
0: Nothing. So no. it's
2: basically like a lot of philosophy about that but just like kind of putting that into a business
0: it's not so much like design for a business man to like say okay now i can take mm-hmm. ethics into my business but it's more a reflection on the the concept and the activities and the abstract of business so that any any of us could think about business whether we're in the business or not or whether we're just observing it right but we all have an interest in business and commerce because we can't live our human life without it so all of us really have an interest in in business ethics and you know, it became a real burgeoning field maybe 30, 40 years ago, and it's changed a lot over, over time. But some of the big questions that were um, that were the, probably the most important questions early on in business ethics as an academic discipline anyway, were what is the what is extent of corporate social responsibility? So you've got these big corporations. And on the one hand, one idea about business, say Milton Friedman makes this well-known, is that the the kind of one single end and only end of a business corporation, right, is to increase the increased profit for the shareholders. And so then obviously, you know, people that disagree with that, say Ralph Nader, for example, would say, well, wait a minute, you have a corporation in here and you're increasing profits, but there's all this pollution going down the river, which isn't good for the environment. It isn't good for that, like those people that live down by that river, you know, and then you're outsourcing jobs, let's say to another country. And so you're externalizing costs, which really helps you make more profit, but that's not good, right, for those communities. So it, you have a social responsibility, not just to, to your shareholders and making profit, but a wider one to what I would say is more like the common good. So would you say in the United
2: States, especially in business, one of the downfalls of business is the loss of virtues that go into like creating a business or that you have to maintain to have a good, healthy business, not just monetary-wise, but also like ethically and virtuously. Yeah, I
0: think that people kind of compartmentalize. They think that mm. what you do in business has different rules. It's kind of like, it's compared by a, a, a well-known thinker in this area to a poker game. So so business is like a poker game where there's cheaters. And of course, we don't want cheaters in business. You know, people that actually break rules and laws and ethical codes. So we don't want, don't want cheaters, right? And we don't want people that kind of rig the game, like, you know, I make you drunk and then I get you at the table. So I'm not really Like we're doing cheating, here, right? Yeah. <laughs> like doing, yeah exactly. um, so, So we don't want unethical poker players that rig the competition and we don't want cheaters. But then once you get to the poker table, you can do things to the other players that you wouldn't do if you were just like out in normal life, like bluff right, deceive them, right, kind of get a little bit cutthroat so you can win. And of course, when you're with friends playing poker, that's kind of fun and everybody knows that's part of the game. And so I think the idea is that people think business is like that. They think it's like a poker game where you can bluff, you can deceive. But everybody kind of knows that that's what everybody else is doing. So it's not the same as lying. It's not the same as deception. And so I do think that they think there's a different set of virtues that are relevant for everyday life and interaction. And then there's kind of a, a, a maybe a different set when you do business that has to do with more success and, it, and winning mm-hmm. rather than um, being an excellent human being.
2: Well, it's almost like the you know the concept of capitalism or Americanism is like living for excess, you know? Uh, which I guess you can agree with or disagree with um, but yeah you really start to question I guess the kind of ethics behind doing certain things um, especially because my parents are family practice doctors and you know they have their own business and especially I think in the medical field you, ethics is just a, such a huge I mean it's basically yeah. if you don't have ethics you have malpractice right uh, so I think um, definitely having ethics, in this country is very important uh, and, you know, and definitely in businesses just like to have, because it feels I think like when people it, say yeah. that when
0: they say have ethics, they, they would agree with you. But I think people often mistake what that means for having a code of conduct. It's so mm-hmm. like having ethics means having a code of conduct or a set of rules like at your, like
1: regulations. At yeah. Your like
0: regulations, like you have a set on of rules on your wall of your business and you, and you do give those to your employees those things are important. Mm-hmm. So I think we think of ethics more as externally guiding actions and that's the kind of mistake about how we think about ethics. or really, ethics is about virtues, okay. right And the kind of person you're going to become, right? And the traits of an excellent human being. So ethics is more about who you become rather than just simply what you do. Okay. Obviously those things are intimately related, but it's more about your character yeah. right, than about the external actions.
1: Yeah. So so what if somebody said, okay, well, business is meant, if you say business, like, oh, well, it's generally meant to, you know, it, it it's included in virtue ethics. Like you're mm-hmm. trying to strive for the good. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, I'm trying to make money with my business. Mm-hmm. And that may not always be, let's say with the poker game rules or whatever, like business has to be, you have to fire people sometimes, mm-hmm. you have to do difficult deals. Maybe your marketing is not going to be Like, you're not going to just have a product and then say, well, it has these good things, but it also has these major flaws. Like when you're doing a commercial or something like that, like you're going to try and provide the best. Right. So, you know, if you say, well, look, life in general, you're striving for virtue, but business, you have to play the rules of business. And if you're trying, if you're shaping your company to just be virtue driven, Mm -hmm. you may not be success driven
0: enough. Right. So then the the kind of old question comes up, is good ethics, good business? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, like
2: I think, though, that that might be kind of a valid point is that if you, you might not be successful as successful if you're so, I don't know, maybe as f- focused on virtues or, I mean, which I feel like is, happens in the world today. Uh, people like throw away that just because so they can be so successful, but which is kind of a sad
0: thing. Um, but yeah, I think that one of the problems there is like when when we think success, success is... Is multiply definable, like what is success? Yeah. So, like with the example I gave, of Friedman versus Nader, right? So, success for Friedman, right, means meeting his goal, and his goal is increase profits for shareholders, right? But if that's not the goal, then then that wouldn't be success to do that. So then the question is, well, what should the goal of a business be? So one thing we look at in that class is we read this little essay by Roger Scruton, Sir Roger Scruton, the late Sir Roger Scruton, God bless his soul. Um, He wrote a a little essay called The Morality of Commerce. And he describes what he calls in that essay, the old habits of commerce, where the product itself, the quality of the product itself is a huge focus. I mean, think about it like an artist. An artist is interested in the thing they produce, the actual product they produce from their knowledge, their art, right, using their skill. And then once you have a great product, you want that to be shared among people and it to benefit people. And so you want a relationship, right, with the person, the person buying from you, right? The buyer and seller need to have a relationship that builds the common good and builds the bonds of society. Commerce should increase the bonds of the society and contribute to the common good in that sense. And also in the sense of the product is something that itself is excellent, valuable, good, useful, right? And in that process, the businessman makes money, right? And can make a profit so that then he can keep being excellent, sustain his business, right, pay his employees and those other things. So I think that's a, a good start to think about business ethics is it's supposed to contribute to the common good and be about the excellence of the product. Those are the goals of business. And profit's fine as long as you don't compromise those goals. Hmm. And so one question I ask in that class is when, it, when is it good for a business to die? Right. So when we try to sustain a human life at all costs, that can create some pretty terrible situations. Right? Because we are, we are mortal. We will die. And so we need to prepare for a good death. That's why we pray the Hail Mary all the time. It's all about death. Are we prepared for death? The business should think in the same way. When, it, when should we close our doors? I think that's a good question to, to sort of do an ethical check.
2: Yeah, no, that's yeah. a really So, like,
0: when question. should the Kellen and Alex show end?
1: <clears> yeah. You know right. what I mean? We're not <laughs> a business, but how do we die
2: well? <laughs> how do we die well? Maybe we go out on top of the a bang. Dr. Plato
1: podcast, and then we just say that's no. a guns, guns
2: blazing. Guns blazing. Yeah. Exactly. We well, you know what we're, tra- we're trying to do is at least something that I want to do is get a live audience mm-hmm. in ground floor of uh, Dakota. <laughs> that would be wild, though. In Puviese, the <laughs> auditorium down there. So, uh, that'd be really cool. So, uh, you can have death
0: matches. <laughs> yes. Is that what? No.
2: UFC fights. You UFC knows. fights. He. We really want to go to Vegas to go see the UFC fights, but you know they're mm-hmm. not having any in-person
0: attendance. It's sad. Yeah. But we're trying to get there, but it's just hard. Yeah. To do I, I I feel the pain because I'm a Dodger fan. And I've watched a lot of games. You know, they hit home runs and it hits a cardboard picture. Yeah. All <laughs> I hope. <laughs> I hope the guy. <laughs> That the person repre- I hope the person represented gets the souvenir. That's all I hope. <laughs> the, okay, the worst I saw of that. Okay, so it was
1: a hockey game, yeah. and you know, like when when somebody hits a hat trick, like people in the audience would throw hats. Mm-hmm. So this was like I can't believe it was like the Canucks or somebody. Uh, they this guy hit hit a hat trick. They had a staff member like run down the stairs with a bunch of hats and throw, <laughs> and throw hats I mean- <laughs> individually into the rink. That's what they to have simulate do. a hat trick. Yeah, that's right. what they do. Yeah, that
2: that yeah. is the state
0: of sports it's- right now. <laughs> Strange.
2: Well, I mean. My question is, at what point does the American public get so fed up of not being able to go to games? What do you think about that? Because a big kind of narrative in the United States is our sports. Right. Like that's something that really fuels our economy, fuels our just everyone around us. So like what are your general thoughts on when should we come back and like accordance to COVID and just like how important that is? I think that's
0: a really big question. I, I think I would start answering that question by saying I think there's two things going on in sports that are really important and are deeply human. One is a competition. So there's a certain um, place for competitiveness in human life that's healthy. Right. And of course there's unhealthy competition. Right. And then I think there's the idea of the spirit. Like when I was in high school, we used to have like pep rallies where it's like a, you know, a spirit rally where you get pumped up about the game. Right. So it's something we can come together and really care about. Even though in in the long run, it's actually a trifle. Like who cares about, you know, whether this like piece of leather goes over here or does that, you know, big deal, right? But it's something we all get around to care about. It's a trifle that we all care about and it's fun and it's enjoyable, Hmm. right? Um, And then I think the other element of sports to think about is it's commercialization. Hmm. So think of going to a minor league game in baseball, versus going to a major league game in baseball. In a minor league game, you can actually converse with the people around you, right? The stands aren't such that you're freaked out that your kid's going to fall down and break his head because it's so steep and just pure concrete everywhere.
1: Or get hit by a baseball.
0: <laughs> yeah, or <get> hit by- <laughs> Exactly. So there's that, that notion, I think. So sports is, I think, a really important... And when we think about Franciscan, we have sports. And I think that's a really important part of Franciscan University. Mm. You know, there's people that argue like, hey, we want to be academically excellent. So why are we putting all this money in sports? I think, you know, sometimes there's kind of a prejudice against sports. Mm -hmm. There's also a prejudice for sports. But I think there's a right relation there. Sports can be really important for bonding people together. And that's a really important human thing. I think in in terms of competitiveness… I think that back to the business ethics analogy, I think one reason why business is thought to be a poker game is because we have an excessive interest in competition. Hmm. I think what happened, and it's a long story about the so-called crisis of our civilization, of Christian, Christian civilization, is at some point competition became unrestricted. And when competition became unrestricted, then I think you have a lot of problems enter into into our economic activities and businesses. So unrestricted competitions, I think a a problem. And in (laughs) sports, sometimes that happens. And it's a natural human inclination, a concupiscible inclination, right? In my children, for example, they often think that everything's competitive. Everything is made into a thing where like you win and you gloat. And And I have to tell my son all the time, you know what, son, life is not a competition. Life is not dog eat dog. Competition is supposed to be for mutual enjoyment with your friends, right? It's not so you win and you have victory. And then that gets brought into the analogy with war, like everything's like he's going to kill. Victory just means killing. Like, well, no, no, that's even a, that's even a, a, you know, a kid who doesn't play video games thinks that way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, and so that's one aspect of, I think the issue, I think there's a lot of topics there. It would be interesting to pull apart if you want to go there, but the COVID thing, I think is a really important thing. I think at some point people are going to wake up to common sense. Like if you look at the science behind this, right? I think that there's a lot of overreactions and overhype and over fear going on. I think there were a lot of things we did early on that were wise, right? There were areas in hot pockets that were really dangerous and deadly and we didn't know much about what, what it was. But now, for example, there's been studies on the infection fatality rate, which is different than the case fatality rate, Yeah. right? It's really important to understand what is the actual fear that we should feel. And in terms of you know people under 75 the infection fatality rate is, is minuscule, right? And so then I think people are starting to see, wait, every, our interest in COVID has been co-opted by our political interests, right. right? And so there's ideologies at stake. And that's unfortunate because then we can actually look at the facts and the truth about what this disease actually is and what it actually does in different <clears throat> populations and different ages and et cetera. Hmm. So I think people are going to get, get it tired of it. Right. And they're going to wake up to common sense and realize, you know what, being together with friends and watching, for example, watching the Dodgers with real fans, right, is a lot more satisfying than with piped in fan noise, right? So it's part of, a, of being the spirit, right, of a Dodger fan. It means something. It has a history, right? it has a significance of value to human life. Mm. And it is compromised and it is an inconvenience right now. And for a while, we thought these inconveniences were worth it. I'm not sure all of them are worth it now. Maybe some mm. of them are in some places. And even sports yeah. are being politicized. Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Super, I mean, you look at the NBA.
1: I mean, you look at all of all them. All the Black kneeling, Lives Matter Kneeling for the, the flag, Black Lives There Matter was a Dodger game
0: canceled because of this.
1: Yeah. There was a Padres game that yeah. got canceled. The, the Mariners canceled
0: their game at the Padres on yeah, the, the A's canceled Jacob Blake yeah. day. Yeah. I think that's such a big danger to, to think that all life, right, is this sort of contest competitive and political. And there's a winner and there's a loser. And in our country, there's basically two sides, which we all know those two sides don't represent the Catholic church right? Neither side of those perfectly represents the Catholic church. And we have to be critical of both. Just like St. Francis said, right? Our great patron, right? We shouldn't be part of any party, right? We might agree with some parties because the policies are consistent with the Catholic church, but we should not have an allegiance to a party. That creates yeah. factions. Mm-hmm. The whole point of society is being one society of bonded people who have care about each other and their same culture and same history, but the parties tend to re- prevent that.
1: So we have a running question that Cal and I throughout our podcast have had, which is how much should a Catholic support Trump? Mm. Like how vocal should you be supporting Trump, the Republican party as a Catholic? Uh, Like how involved, I don't know if you saw Archbishop Vigano's letter in support Mm. of Trump, but he wrote a letter basically saying, you have to read um, that doctor. Yeah. It's, he was saying like Trump is, you know, he's trying to fight for life. He's fighting against a kind of globalist system. Even (laughs) he said, there's a deep state along with a deep church that Mm. he was uh, pointing out. Mm. And, you know, a lot of people saw that letter and were like, this isn't something a bishop should do. Like very clear, vocal support of one candidate, political candidate. And I have that same kind of like, OK, how much should I be politically as a Catholic supporting, let's say, the Republican Party, right. Trump versus just being like, OK, I'm not going to get
0: so involved. I'm going to focus on other stuff. Yeah, I think my answer to that is, is, is multifarious. So, I mean, the first thing is, I think when we think of a national election we often get fixated on only national elections. And so what it does is it creates a non-localism, like as if that's going to be the answer to our political problems is what's going on at the national level and national election. I'm not saying it's unimportant. Hmm. I'm just saying that there's a lot going on at local levels where everybody is. And if everybody took a great interest in their local area and took as much interest as you do in the national election, right? Then they would be able to make some good changes, right? For the Catholic church and using Catholic social teaching to find the right policies. My other response to that is that... um, You know, this country is secular, right? It's just a fact. We don't like that, but it is a secular country. The institutions of this country are secular, right? So education is secularized. The realm of science is secularized. Um, Technology is secularized. Politics is secularized. Meaning whether you believe in God is an irrelevant factor. Hmm. You might believe in God and that's cool. you might not believe in God and that's cool, but it really doesn't matter. Right. Think about the, in, in um, science, there's this idea of um, methodological naturalism, that if you want to be a good scientist, you need to um, investigate things as if there's no God. Then you won't be distracted by these other religious beliefs that get in the way of doing science, which is totally false to the history of science. Right? So I think we're de facto secularized. And so when we think about a national election, we think about a president, I think it's a bit naive right, to be wanting a Christian representative. Right. You're not going to find that. Okay. Now I think there's been a lot of interest. I mean, in it's Kanye. not Joe Biden yeah. or Nancy Pelosi or Kanye Joe Biden who calls right? himself Catholic? <laughs> or, or Kanye, even though he's a convert, um, right? So right. there's a lot of interest in him because he's a serious <laughs> convert and he cares about the pro-life issue so much, right? Right. But I think, look, in in this day and age, it's to me 100 percent about prudence, right? Forget about the the figure whether he represents right a Catholic um, worldview in his person, in his history, in his virtues, right? and his lack of vices, I think forget about that. Look at the policies. So what I would encourage all the people that didn't vote for Trump last time, right? Is to just erase his, his hair, erase his mouth, erase his voice, erase his personality and read what he did and read his policies about what he's gonna do and forget about the person. And then take Joe Biden and erase, right? What he looks like, right? Erase his voice. Erase all the rep- – and look at what he said he's going to do and read the policies and vote based on the policies that you see being um, recommended, given also your estimation of whether those policies could be implemented, right? So it's not yeah. just a, what, an airy promise, but something yeah. that could actually be done. Mm-hmm. And then you weight all the policies about what could actually be done and say, this is better than this. So that's what I would say. So the reason why I'm interested in voting for Trump is because when I look at all his policies and the things he's doing and the things he could do and the things he has done, right. They're better than the alternatives. And so to me, it's a simple vote. It doesn't have to do with some deep, oh He represents Christianity, or I think he's, you know, had very shady dealings. You know, if you be honest and you look at his history, he doesn't represent right. Honesty and virtue, but that doesn't matter to me in this election.
1: How much do you think church leaders should, so let's say a Bishop. So, I mean, just take abortion, right. I mean, yeah that's uh, you know okay trump's going to represent that he's going to represent a lot more catholic positions even in the past he has and like should a bishop be like okay let's do that let's do that erase the face erase the whatever you may have a lot of trouble with his character or whatever else but like here's the policies those are far more in line with catholic things bishop like, should, should a bishop be, or priest bishop be involved should be in
0: leaders that? bishop should be leaders bishop should be rulers that's what they are I think we, we, we overemphasize our own personal liberty, right? We have an obsession with liberty and the concept of liberty at root in our culture, I think is not Christian, right? It comes from classical liberalism. And I think that is at the, at the root of some of the problems in our, in our political society right now. And our concept of liberty is, um, is the idea that any imposition on anyone's individual liberty is unjustified. So it's by default, unjustified to impose on anyone's individual liberty. So if there's any imposition it has to be justified, think about that for a second. That means that God's authority over his creatures, which impinges on their individual liberty, what they want, in other words, their desire, needs to be justified. That's crazy. Rebelling against God is what needs to be justified. Now think about it in the parental sphere, right? Do parents need to justify their authority Right, for ruling over their children and being good parents. That's crazy, yeah. right? So the natural authority of parenthood and the natural authority of God, right? Goes out the window with this concept of liberty. And if you take the concept of the state, right? The state as sort of this absolute sovereign power in which nothing is higher and what it laws it posits are the law and there's nothing higher, mm-hmm. right? That is not real authority. The concept of the authority of the state, if you look at scripture and tradition, right? Is something that God delegates. It comes from God, Right? And so then when we think about the authority of the church, right? The church has power, right? God gave the church power through Jesus Christ, right? And so we have the this spiritual sphere as it's called, right? And the temporal sphere. And those spheres relate in a certain way. And I think that we misunderstand how those relate and what the powers are. I think we often forget that the church actually has temporal power in the sp- spiritual sphere. So for example, when there's a Catholic, Right? in leadership and that Catholic is doing something that opposes our spiritual good, opposes the salvation of souls, then bishops in the church should say no communion for you, right? Because you're opposing our mission, which is the salvation of souls, right? And you're a Catholic. So they can use their temporal power to, to stop communion or to excommunicate that's mm-hmm. temporal power over yeah. the church, over the spiritual sphere. And it has an overlapping influence. If those people are leaders or rulers in society. So the bishops, I think, I think to a large degree, their failure to be strong rulers is why the church is running rampant and doing what every natural fallen state does, which is sin. Hmm. So yes, I think bishops need to be rulers and that's a huge problem.
1: Because then Catholics are, they're they're split. They're pretty much split Democrat, Republican and all the polls and everything. Um, And when you have a bishop like Vigano who says Trump, Hmm. then he gets destroyed by everybody in the media and even in the Catholic spheres. Hmm. And then of course you have, Pelosi and Mm. Biden, who are, we are devout Catholics Mm. promoting like third trimester abortions, Mm. the whole thing. Right. And there's no one standing up. There's kind of a policy of don't talk politics within Mm. the USCCB.
0: Right. Or if you do make it pro-Democrat and make it against Trump. And doesn't that, that presupposes that, that anti-Christian, anti-Christ notion Mm. of liberty, that presupposes that. I don't, I don't know how you get around that. (laughs) I just don't.
2: You know, it's it's interesting. It's like we, in like you said, in America, we've come become so politicized. We've become so just either this or that, like this party or that party. I mean, it's like we, like you said, it's like we're so focused on our liberties that we kind of lose sight of, of like, of God almost. Like whenever I think about it, sometimes I think about, okay, in America, we are one of the freest nations in the world. We have many things that we can do that give us freedom but it doesn't seem like we have true freedom until we understand like where our freedom came from. Yeah.
0: And you know I, know I, think, what I mean, exactly. We think of freedom in a kind of toy sense yeah. as freedom from constraint, yeah. freedom from restraint, freedom from the imposition on us and our will. Right. But freedom is freedom for, mm-hmm. I mean, think about this. God is a free being in the inside of the Trinity.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Add intra within the Trinity. He is perfectly free, meaning the Holy spirit right? Which is God accepting God's identity, right? Mm -hmm. Accepting, voluntarily accepting. That is not an act that is deterministic. It's necessary because God is going to always, right? Accepting self. So it's eternal and necessary, right? But it's not deterministic. It's still spontaneous and free because God has a will. That is freedom for what? For the eternal life of love, for -hmm. God's very life itself. And the
1: son doesn't yeah. think like, how can I rebel against the father? Yeah, or anything it's, like crazy. That. it's perfectly united, That's- but it's totally free. Yes. It's, it's like, it's necessary that the son comes from the father and that the father, you know, generates the son, mm-hmm. be- begets the son, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a totally free act, but also a totally necessary act. Yes. That's kind of one of those things with the good is like, um, like you were saying with freedom, we think that we're more free when, you know, you can do whatever you want. You get addicted to vices. That's slavery. <laughs> yeah, Augustine, Augustine says he says, that's slavery. Yeah, Augustine says that's not freedom. That's mm-hmm. slavery.
2: Right. Well, freedom. Who's who was yeah. it that said freedom is the ability to do the good? That was some. some I don't know if it was Aquinas or somebody. Sounds right though. Whoever yeah. said yeah. it. Whoever said it, yeah. it was freedom is the ability to do the good. Like hmm. in America, we have such a. I think Biden said that, right? <laughs> oh, no, <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> I mean, if he did, I don't think he means it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe
0: it was Trump. Maybe it was Trump. Yeah. I mean, it's just like
2: we we get so caught up in all that we can do, all that. I mean, just think about it. College, you leave your family, you come here. You can you have the freedom to smoke on campus. You can go out and get drinks whenever you want it. If you're, you know, of the if you come age, come to the Colin Alex show. You can get drinks. You, whenever get, you, you can want. drink. <laughs> like, like we have all these liberties that we can do, but then you like look at. Take, for example, the UCs in Cal- like University of California, mm-hmm. Santa Barbara or right. something. The parties there, I've just been, I've never seen it because I've never gone to one, but I've just heard from many mm-hmm. people, they just have things like sex going on all the time. Mm-hmm. They have people getting completely drunk, out of control. Yeah. I mean, you look at it and you're just like, that is not, that's not freedom. You know what it's I mean? Like it's, it's slavery. Yeah. It's yeah. like, you're literally enslaving yourself to the freedoms of this world. Mm-hmm. And like so many people don't understand that. No. I think that's one thing that I really learned at Franciscan, especially like through the philosophy and theology teaching here, is that I've learned that freedom, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not easy at all. And especially when you're trying to strive to do the good mm-hmm. through that freedom, it, it's like, it just makes life, I mean, in a good way, it makes life to some extent more difficult. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just like, you look at that, you go to those parties, whatever, and you compare it to here. I feel like I'm so much more free here, even though they probably can do so many more things than maybe we can, Mm -hmm. but um, it just feels like-
0: But the things they do are less important. Yeah. So what matters is the the importance of what you do, not Mm -hmm. what you do or how many times Mm -hmm. you do it, right? But the importance of what you do. I mean, take the example of receiving the Eucharist, right? If somebody receives the Eucharist daily, but they don't think about it much, right? I mean, that affects how much grace they can receive. Your subjective Mm -hmm. condition affects how much grace you can receive. Even though we believe as Catholics, there's objective grace there right? It's not merely quantifiable. Like because he went every day, it's more grace than the guy like Louis the Ninth who went twice a year or whatever it was, way less, right? But he thought about it a lot before he received, right? So your subjective condition and how you think about that one act might make a big difference of the grace that you receive, right? And that's what life's about, right? Being in a relationship with God.
2: One thing Alex and I've talked about a lot is confession and like the frequency of confession, what we could have. Do you think that it's a, do you think that it's just too lackadaisical to have the Catholic Church just require one confession per year? I mean, just once a year. I mean, I probably, I go a lot more than that. But do you think that it's just like, that's not right? Do you think we should be required to go to confession? Because it's such a beautiful gift that we have, reconciling with God through a priest. I mean, it's such a, one of the most beautiful gifts we have. Probably the most, one of the most fulfilling gifts that we've ever had. Why would the Catholic Church only say you only have to go once a year?
0: So, I mean, w- without without answering that directly, I mean, I guess I would just ask another question: Well, how many times should it be? You know, like once a month, once a week, every day, like I three times we'll a talking year. About is
2: you know, it's
0: a good yeah. question. So I would I would be interested to, to to know why once a year. So like Chesterton has this analogy of like if you if you're out in the forest and you find a road and it's blocked by something, right? Before you remove the roadblock, because you're like, hey, this is a road. We should shouldn't roads be traveled on? There's a block here. Let's just remove it. He says, you gotta figure out why it was put there first, first figure out why it was put there. And then you'll know whether or not you should leave it there or not. So mm-hmm. I would wanna know the history of that. I, my inclination just without thinking about the theology of it is, is I don't see why we need more than that because we're, we're invited to and encouraged to and taught to right, have frequent confession. right? <coughs> so that might actually be better for us to, to voluntarily go multiple times and frequently. I'm not really sure. I'd have to think about okay. that more. I don't have Makes a definitive sense. answer. Yeah. Well, We've I'm talked about sure. the
1: availability of confession as well. Mm, like having the move from, cause I believe. Well, uh, that I do have be. opinions about. Okay. Yeah. What's your opinion on I think, availability? I,
0: think a, I mean, when I was in St. Louis, uh, that's where I did my PhD there. And I went to uh, an oratory of Christ, the King, sovereign priest there. And actually the canon that married my wife and I there in St. Louis is now in Pittsburgh at Precious Blood. Oh, awesome. Um, and when I, when I went there, I absolutely loved going there because there was confession every single mass during mass, right? Before, during, and after mass, there was confession. Wow. There were always lines. Wow. It, that encouraged, that was like, we, get, we hear about going to, that we should go to confession frequently. But I think when, when priests are there to offer it, and I know it is work and effort, right? But I think that is a huge service to make it available invites people, right? So that, especially as a family man, sometimes it's hard to like schedule things in, right? And I mean, I know it can be used as an excuse too to to avoid confession, right? But but when it's right there and people are right there and you can just go right in that line. And even if you don't make it before, you know, you receive whatever, you can go back to the line afterwards and they'll be there waiting for you. I think that's huge. I think that would be wonderful if every single mass, right? Had confession available before, during, and after. Now, we obviously have you know shortages of priests and things like that, so there's practical considerations, but that doesn't prevent us from caring about the ideal, right? Right. Which is yeah. as frequently as possible before, during an after mass would be great.
2: Mm-hmm. <clears> One <throat> well, other huge thing we talked about for, I mean, a good couple podcasts, I'm sure at least feeling that whole time was the why the Catholic Church. Well, maybe Alex, you can explain this better. But like Easter, the whole yeah. thing about Easter and uh, you know, I had a quote. Yeah,
1: I said it's shameful that we didn't have Easter.
2: He thinks that. I mean, I think that it's that was
1: my genuine feeling at the time.
2: Yeah, you know, and it might change over time. But I mean, what are you, what's your thoughts, Doctor, on the kind of the Catholic Church just not really having, not just have, just not having an
0: Easter Mass? Really,
2: I mean, not like I think having that's an a really
0: difficult um, question Mm. because what was known by whom, when Mm. makes a big difference. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course it was extremely unfortunate and disappointing. Right. I wouldn't say necessarily devastating. Right. But, but extremely disappointing and sad and unfortunate. And um, I I really don't know how to definitively answer that. I don't think I know enough about that, but I do think it was complicated enough with what was known by whom, when, Right, that I could understand the reasoning that was given. Um, I don't know if it was good enough, but I'm not certain enough that it that it, that it wasn't good enough either. Right. Uh, so it's it's complicated. But I do think I mean my basic position on on COVID, right in general is I think when it first came out, and when we didn't know much about it, and we didn't know the science or anything like that, and we made decisions based on prudence, which was what we knew when, and what we knew then was like, you know, estimates from the WHO or the CDC and things like that. Right, we acted on the information we had in the, in the right way. It was a pandemic that was threatening to overwhelm our health system. And we had to do something. And when we looked at anecdotal evidence from this, different cases like that cruise ship or in Italy or all these other things, that the things that we were seeing made us act in the way we did. And I think there was some wisdom in, in what we did originally. I think that as things progressed and we learned more about it, and I think when, when I personally looked at the facts and the evidence as best as I could, not only in this country, but across, in the world, like using Google Translate to look at like foreign articles about this, both scientific and popular journalistic articles, and getting into that, I just I thought, look, something something isn't adding up here, because I was really interested right in the beginning in the infection fatality rate, not the case fatality rate. I wanted to know how many people died out of how many people got infected. Yeah. Not how many people died out of how many cases there were. <laughs> cases being they have it severe enough that they got tested. And now there's a case of COVID. Right? And we all knew that that number of infections was greater than the number of cases. And so early on, there was a couple of studies at Stanford that I really liked. One was by a guy named Jay Bhattacharya. And, and he did a study early on in COVID. And I, and I waited with bated breath for that to come out because he wanted a representative sample of the population to get a, an estimate of the um, infection fatality rate. And when that finally came out, he found out, yeah, way more people have this than we thought. And I rechecked his science just which he came out with another statement last week, and I rechecked it because I was interested to see if the original findings kept up and were consistent, and they and they were. Wow! And so the the infection fatality rate to me is 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 not nearly as deadly as the case fatality rate, and when you look at the age categorizations, and you can find this on the CDC, right? Like fifty year olds are not really significantly at risk. They're not they're not at more risk than in the infant infants who are born. The infant fatality rate is higher, right? So if you look at everybody across the world under 75 in over 25 studies, these serotological studies about seeing who's infected, even if there's no symptoms, right? It's something like 0.03%, which means three people out of a thousand, 10,000, sorry, three people out of 10,000 who get infected based on this information die under 75. I mean, that's 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 amazing,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: Right. And then you hear other statistics from the CDC, for example, that said 94% of the people that, were in, that had cases, right, and that died, 94% of the deaths, right, had 2.6 comorbidities. I mean, 6%, right, only had COVID. I mean, that's a lot of people still, right, but a lot less than we thought. I mean, 7,000 people die every day of various causes. Right. So I just think the way we're estimating it and the way we feel it's hyped and we're overreacting but that doesn't mean there are seriously vulnerable populations that we should care about. Of course we should, but I think we need to adjust our responses to the data, to the actual facts. And But back to you know a philosophical question for me is we are guided by these ideologies, right? Red feed, blue feed, right wing, left wing, Republican, Democrat. And so when we try to get into the facts, we get into this vortex, this spin, right? Of each side has a spin. And I think it prevents us from being interested in the facts and truth. If we're not intentionally interested in the facts and truth, then we will conform to the ways of the world. If we don't transform ourselves by the renewal of our minds, right? So that we can see what's good, perfect and the acceptable will of God, Hmm. then we will get spun. We have to intentionally go against the flow because the ways of the world, right? Are not the ways of God. We are a secular culture. So to think about the facts and truth apart from what the right says or the left says, I think is the big challenge. And that's why I care so much about teaching philosophy. And I'm so happy we have three core classes because we need to be philosophical. And being philosophical doesn't mean you know what Plato and Aristotle said. Or like you know how to put these philosophers on a timeline. To me, that's sort of like, that's important information about the history of philosophy and the history of ideas. But what matters is that you have a philosophical organ in your intellect, a philosophical way to sift wisdom from what seems like wisdom, Hmm. right? Truth from what seems like truth. And that's what the liberal arts is all about. You don't just get that in philosophy. You get that in your literature core, right? In your history core, all across the core, you're trying to train your mind to have a habit, an art, right? A knowledge, a skill to find wisdom. So in one sense, the entire core is getting you to be philosophical in a broad sense, And that's what I'm interested in. And that's what Franciscan's interested in. And that's what we desperately need so that we can think about truth and facts and get the right response to these social Mm. conditions, whether it's a national election, COVID, sports, competition, all these things. That's why I'm so passionate about that. And I just hope other people realize, you know what, you don't have to go to college to do this. You can get a book, whether that's Lord of the Rings, right? Or uh, Animal Farm or Mere Christianity. It doesn't even matter. Get a book, form a parish book club yourself take ownership and quit waiting for it to happen. That's just laziness. We need to take ownership of who we're really supposed to be as Catholics. And we're supposed to be people that love wisdom. So it's easy to do. Get books, read it, talk about it with people, try to really analyze it, really figure it out what the truth is before you just want to take it and say what you want and make it ideological.
1: When did you know you were interested in philosophy? Like a what
0: age or what what sparked it originally? I think what sparked it originally is I was I was interested in the creation evolution debate in junior high and high <laughs> yeah. school. I had an amazing <laughs> science teacher who was also the um, um, taught us in Sunday school. I was a Baptist then. Okay, and a really you're great a convert, guy. right? I'm a convert. Yeah, yeah. 2009. Props, yeah. props, doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Props. Congrats. Hey, it's all all glory to God. I mean, <laughs> I, I took a long time. It took me five years. I'm slow because I'm sinful. Um, so like Hopkins said, it should only take you two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyways, (laughs) um, when I was there, he taught me and he was, he was, he's a creationist, like an old school, like, you know, young earth creationist, seven day literal. Mm. And he was so dynamic. He had a twin brother as well. I have a twin brother and he actually, and his twin brother actually had a Guinness book of world records. For a long time, it got it got beat eventually, but it was for the most vertical feet climbed in twenty four hours, basically running up and down mountains. Um, so he was extremely. <laughs> that sounds like an interesting, he's an amazing person. His name's Claire Thomas. Props to Claire. Mm-hmm. Love you lots. Hope you're doing great. And uh, and and he taught us creation science. So I like went out into my backwoods right and territory in Oregon, and he showed me how. Look here, where there was a flood. This is why this landscape looks like this. So, for example, we had this a beautiful place called Fort Rock. It's this desert. There's nothing in there. But there's this ring of rocks, 500 feet tall, Whoa. in the middle of nowhere. It's called Fort Rock. Yeah, up to 500. It's 50 stories. Yeah, and it's just in the middle of nowhere. So, he would explain the reason why that's there is because a volcano erupted when this was all underwater. right? Mm-hmm. And that is actually how it's explained. But the, the typical scientific explanation says it was a local flood. But he said that was a global flood, for example. So, we learned like flood geology. I could learn all about that. But my dad is an unbaptized person, not a Christian. And he was an evolutionist. He is an evolutionist. So for a long time, I got in that because I wanted my dad to be a Christian. I was raised an evangelical. So I wanted to spread the gospel with him. I wanted his soul to be saved. I still do. Um, And so I got in that creation evolution debate until I realized at one point that, so say we're looking at the Archaeopteryx fossil on the table, my dad and I. And I interpret that in a certain way. And I give a kind of creationist, you know, biblical flood geology account of this thing. And he looks at it and he gives an evolutionary account of it. And I thought, well, why do we give this a different interpretation of the same evidence? Hmm. And I realized then we have to look at yeah. deeper, deeper presuppositions. And then I realized that that's what philosophy is doing. It's looking at the deeper presuppositions. And if somebody doesn't believe in God, if they're an atheist, well, they're never gonna buy my interpretation of Archaeopteryx. And then I thought, well, how could I like convince somebody to believe in God? how do I do that? What is that? So I got interested in philosophy and apologetics Mm. and that's what got me, that's what sparked my interest. And then I went to college and I went to a little Baptist college. It was then called Western Baptist college and it's now called Corbin university. And I went there and I got, I was really interested in apologetics. I was interested in history. I was interested in, you know, the the history of the church, liturgy art, all these things. And I was in an environment that was extremely anti-intellectual, didn't care about history, didn't care about literature, didn't um, liturgy, didn't care about art, didn't care about philosophy. There's no philosophy major, no philosophy minor. And it was just, it had it just become a liberal arts school, no philosophy major, no philosophy minor, but it, you could have other majors than just biblical studies, which it used to be. Mm. And so I got my my new mission in life was to defeat anti-intellectualism. Another name for that is fideism, right? The mistaken view of the relationship between faith and reason. And so that was my big shtick. And that's what made me want to do a PhD in philosophy. I wanted to get, make an impact on the church and outside the church, Right um, to defeat anti-intellectualism in the church and use apologetics and spread the gospel right in a secular culture using, you know, good arguments and natural theology. For example, that's Mm. kind of the path quickly. Short story. So when did you convert? In that. uh, So that was even later. So I so I was an undergrad from 1997 to 2002. Okay. Um, So then I went and did a master's degree. Actually worked on two master's degrees at Biola University Mm -hmm. um, in California, which to me was when I came and visited Franciscan, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is Biola University, half as big with, with nuns and monks, right? And priests walking around. But other than that, it's like really similar, like, you know, singing praise songs, guitars, like kind of the okay. evangelical feel. Where in California is it? La Mirada, California. Okay. So it's in, you know, the greater Los Angeles area, just north of Anaheim, oh, oh, cool. just north of Anaheim. Okay, cool. Yeah. So you're right
1: right there, smack dab yeah. in LA. Nice. Yeah, exactly.
0: And so I went there and I was working on two masters and that was 2002 to 2008. And then I went to St. Louis to do my PhD that was 2008. So I converted one year after I was there, but my my conversion process started sometime when I was at Biola, I was, you know, a wandering and disenchanted evangelical Hmm. where I started thinking, I really, I went to church. I almost called it mass. I guess I've been classic Catholic (laughs) long enough where I can make that mistake. And I I was going to church and I was constantly fighting these critical thoughts. Like this sermon's no good. Right. He doesn't know how to interpret the Bible. He's no good. Right. This music's terrible. Musically. I'm a trained musician. Mm-hmm. Terrible musically. The lyrics are just pathetic. Theologically. <laughs> Sounds right? like CTK. Yeah. <laughs> the art, the art of this bombed out, whatever gym or whatever, whatever. this is lame. I'm like, nothing in here is helping me worship you. God, all I want to do is worship you right now. Mm-hmm. And then I'm sitting there and I just don't want to be critical. I realized the only reason I was going to church was so I could go to coffee hour and talk to my friends when it was over. Mm. It was like, something's up. This ain't right. I need to do something. And so I, I took a class, um, a philosophical theology class on the, um, the incarnation. And, uh, and it was a fascinating class. I loved it. And we read a book. And in that book, I read a, a chapter called The Self-Understanding of Jesus. I thought, oh, that's interesting. How did Jesus think about himself? Like what was his like inner psychology? Weird. And it was by N.T. Wright. And then that took me down this huge tangent theologically. And I got fascinated and obsessed with N.T. Wright. Hmm. And I found out that N.T. Wright was doing, you know, cool biblical studies in the same kind of vein as like Scott Hahn, right? John Bergsma, some of the people we love and admire for their work. And, uh, and so I got into N.T. Wright and I was like, oh, well, where does he, oh, he's an Anglican. Oh, I wonder if there's any like Anglican churches around. I've never gone to one of those. And one of my friends who was sitting right next to me in the class said, oh, I, I go to the Blessed Sacrament. There's actually an Anglican church called the blessed sacrament, believe it or not. And I, and I went there and I was, and I said, I'm going to give myself, you know, if I, if I think this is okay, I'm going to commit to this for one year because I hate the idea of church hopping. I think that so many cafeteria Christians are doing that. It's no good. So I'm going to commit because I believed N.T. Wright's idea that if we want to change something, it should be reformed from within. Hmm. So if I, if this is decent, I'm going to commit to this for one year. Well, after two weeks, I was utterly committed. I really wanted to. It was beautiful. I had sacred music, right? The Anglican chant, right? Anglican polyphonic choir. I was trained amazing organist. They had, they had ad orientum. Well, sure. it was a really small, you know, beautiful, intimate chapel. And it was really reverential. And I became a committed Anglican. I became an Anglican. I was confirmed as an Anglican. But when that happened, I, I realized, well, the Catholic question is on the radar screen. Because when I became an Anglican, my commitment in my mind was, I'm committing to Christian um, history's Christianity, not the Christianity that's an abstract idea that I made up in my theory of mm-hmm. what it is, but what actually happened through and in history. And, you know, I soon found Newman's works, right? And he has that famous remark that, that, that if you are deep in history, you will cease to be a Protestant. And that was totally true for me. And so I committed to this historic church and I'm, not, I'm never going back to a non-liturgical, non-historical church. So then it was Anglican, Orthodox or Catholic for me. And I couldn't really make up my mind for a while, but one of my best friends, Jared Goff, I've used some of his texts in classes I've taught. And uh, and he became a Catholic basically by reading reading the Fathers. And wow. and he's a theologian. He's, a, he's actually a theologian who works in the Franciscan tradition, right? And he's dynamically Orthodox, which is great. There's not a, not enough of those Right. And I had all these hundreds of hours of conversations with him a lot and other friends who also later converted before I did um, and conversations with them. He was like my Catholic answer man and, uh, and God bless him. You know, if he hears this, God bless you, Jared. Love you lots. And, and had many conversations with him until I realized, you know, I got down to where all of my objections, all of my prejudices, every argument I could mount against the Catholic church that I could conceive of was blunted by his answers. <laughs> I was never convinced of the Catholic church. In other words, I didn't think it's true, but I could no longer think it was false.
1: Hmm. Wow. So I
0: was in this position where I was I, I was an agnostic about every single Catholic issue. And actually for two years, I wanted to be a Catholic. I thought, God, I just want, I want this to be true. I, you know, I want to be a Catholic, but I, I just, I can't see that this is true. And I was held up on the, on the infallibility of, of, of the church and the papacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was held up on that issue for a long time until I realized that the last straw, when I was meeting with a priest, Father Andrew Pinsett, God bless him if you're out there, love you lots. He works at Oxford. He works at the uh, Ian, Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion. He was a businessman for a career. Then he did astrophysics, got a PhD. Then he was at <laughs> SLU and got a PhD in philosophy. He's amazing, totally down to earth, super winsome, amazing guy. And he, I met with him. And I had, at this point I'd gotten hold of the old uh, Tridentine confession of faith, profession of faith. Mm. And you should look that up. It's really amazing. And I went through that whole detailed profession of faith. Like now the way they do the profession is you kind of say like one thing, like I believe everything the Catholic church teaches and then that's it. But for this was like a serious thing. You're like saying, I profess and believe everything the Catholic church teaches, whether it's the veneration of relics, right? Right. The uh, like purgatory doctrines on purgatory, like everything that's anti-Protestant that happened in the council of Trent. And then the, 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 um, Tridentine creed you recite. And so I went through that and I thought, which things do I accept or not? And there's all these lines. I accept and affirm this. I, I believe this, I affirm this. And I went through and I said, I don't, I don't accept and affirm those things, but I don't reject any of those things because I was an agnostic. Remember Mm -hmm. I showed this to father Andrew and he said, huh? He said, it looks like you're ready to go to me. I was like, what? I said, but I don't think these things are true. And he said, but are you willing to believe and that phrase caught me because it actually had two meanings. One, it went, are you endeavoring? Like, are you willing to push this rock up as you're trying to push it? That was what I was trying to do for two years. I was willing yeah. myself to believe. And also, are you willing, meaning, are you ready to believe? And of course I was ready too. he said, well, go do it. You know? And he said, there's no other game in town. That was another line. He said, there's no <laughs> other game in town. It's like, and I believe that too. Like if the, if there's a Christian religion, then it's Catholicism or nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. And i got to that point um, for lots of arguments. So I had to deal with the Orthodox question, things like that. Um, but at that point I, I realized I had a false view of faith, mm-hmm. right? I actually was a rationalist. So my, my fight against anti-intellectualism and fideism, I went too far the other way. So I thought I actually had to think that these mysteries were true before I committed to them. No, in committing to them, right. God will show you they're true. And that's exactly what happened. So shortly after I committed and became a Catholic, I found myself thinking, oh yeah, I believe in transubstantiation. Yeah, that's true. And I could like authentically say that.
1: Wow. So that's before, a really wise yeah, priest.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was totally wise. And I thought that I had to, uh, to be authentic. Mm. I thought I had to already think it was true. But then I was like, what, well, these are mysteries. And then I read Aquinas on faith. I was like, mm. oh yeah. And he says, well, the point of these arguments is to show you that, that, that these doctrines are not impossible. That's a pretty low standard, right? But it's really important. Because if you think it's impossible, you can never have faith. Right. But if you think, well, this is possible, well then, and you want it because you see, right? That it creates you, faith. Yeah. Then that's an act of faith. God is giving you the gift. Just accept it. So, yeah, that was my conversion. That's, amazing. that's yeah. an
2: amazing conversion story. All the just knowledge and people and everything that I went into that is just unbelievable. My parents, my I believe my dad is a convert. My mom, uh, she was raised Catholic but really didn't practice too much. Um but yeah, so it's just really interesting hearing convert stories because they're so widespread. You know, what I mean, the, yeah. everybody has a different conversion story, all the different
1: paths to Rome.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's crazy.
1: My dad's a convert as well, yeah. actually from yeah, from like Southern Baptist. Okay. And um yeah, he he also he, I think he took a he, he said he was a nihilistic atheist at one point uh-huh. when he was like in college you know yeah. I, you,
0: you have to go through it you ever point. been tempted to that Alex? Mm-hmm. Well,
1: after reading a lot of Nietzsche you know <laughs> I remember no, that never, when never you came back from that. Austria yeah, oh no. man I was in Austria I was he, was, it was he
2: would else. sit by yeah. the window and just read Nietzsche all day, yeah. all we, day we were roommates yeah.
0: all three of us oh all he's three. fascinating he's yeah. an amazing writer fascinating you were so Dangerous.
2: into it he would always that's when he had his big beard and he would just mess with the beard Dostoevsky Nietzsche
1: I have
0: not Nothing, no philosopher's beard anymore. It's, it's sad. Listen to Russian Orthodox chant.
1: Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was something else. But yeah, no, uh, my, my dad's, he, uh, it was actually my mom who was, has been Catholic forever. And she actually, uh, when they first met, uh, they knew each other from like biology class or something like that, sophomore year of high school. And uh, for some reason, she knew that my dad was the one. And she said she prayed a rosary every night that they would wow. get married up until they got married. Wow. God wow. bless her. Which is amazing. Yeah, wow. my mom's awesome. Mother of 11. That's I'm not able to see 11. And um, Anyway, so my, my dad had so many intellectual... He, he was completely disillusioned with Protestantism because mm-hmm. you can get one interpretation over here mm-hmm. and you go down the street, you get this other interpretation. Right. And he just concluded everybody's wrong yeah. and <laughs> then just moved on because my dad's a very practical man. And, um, and so he was like, these guys don't know what they're talking about. And he showed up in a philosophy class and he's like... Yeah, I don't believe any of this. I, I think this is all garbage. <laughs> like, I don't. I don't think anybody knows what you're talking about. I don't think anyone has a truth. Yeah. And then his philosophy professor says, "Oh, so you think that's a true statement?" Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got him to be aware
1: of he himself. Got him, <laughs> got him right there. Yeah. And he's like, "Wait a second. Maybe I believe one truth. Yeah. You know? <laughs> At least that's true." And uh, I love it. anyway, so he got uh, my my uh, my grandfather, who um, my mother's uh, dad uh, sent him to Long Beach, California for a, uh, a Catholic conference. And it was a power, power packed. Janet Smith was there. And mm-hmm. that was right when she was giving her, um, you know, contraception. Why yeah, yeah. not? That uh-huh. got way. That went really huge. Yeah, Dr. Hahn was there. Yeah. Uh, there was this priest, I think from South America, who's really, really awesome. He was there. And my grandfather's like, you're going to this conference. My dad's like, Oh, am I? Yes, you are. You're going to this conference. And he <laughs> sent my dad and my, my mom there. And, and, um, he heard all these talks and stuff. And I was like, Oh my goodness. He said he went up and just bought every book he could just mm-hmm. just apologetics, Han stuff, whatever. And went back and he, he became totally convinced. And uh, he, he called himself the Apollo, the Catholic terminator for a while. Cause he was so versed in <laughs> apologetics <laughs> and we have, so in the South, wow. it's like 3% Catholic. Yeah. So like everybody's Protestant. Yeah. And of course all my, my dad's family is all Protestant and stuff for, for ages. And he would just go around like apologetically, like, taking people out and stuff. And he said, what was this? It was my, my aunt or somebody who's not, not Catholic anymore. He said, uh, she said, um, Dan, even if everything you said is right, I still wouldn't be, want to be a Catholic because you're such an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) So you can't take apologetics too far. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) But uh, definitely, but no. And then when he converted and I've, uh, we've actually been Catholic the same amount of time, basically He, he got, Brought into the church, and then that same year I was born, um, and I've always viewed it from the cradle Catholic side. But, um, but, but the convert, like the whole convert, there's so many converts here, Franciscan professors, and I mean, Doctor Hans, you know, famous convert as well. And um, it's it's an like living your life outside of it, you get to see a big difference. Mm -hmm. And then once you enter, you're like, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. Like living the Catholic life actually does make a difference on everything. And that's a difficult thing to convey to people who have always been in
0: it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I I remember um, reading in uh, The Everlasting Man, Chesterton. So he said that one of our biggest problems in our civilization, our Christian civilization, is we can't look at Christianity from the outside anymore. So we think we understand it. He said we would do a lot better if we would look at Christianity, like we look at Confucianism. We would see it for what it really is. And that's why he had to write The Everlasting Man so we could see it for what it really is. So the first part of it, if you know that book, Right, which is one of Lewis's C.S. Lewis's favorite books of all time, is uh, the first half is like, man is unique. Man is so different among all things in nature. He's so unique. And just like, that's a fact. He said, I'm not trying to say anything religious yet, but just like, look at the facts. Man is so different. Right? And then the second half is the church. It's so different than any world religion. So he starts out by saying, well, we think that we can do comparative religions. Like we have this chart, like, you know, on the left-hand side, it says salvation and, you know, what it thinks about heaven and hell or the afterlife, uh, what it think about desires on this earth. And then other columns, right? Are like Buddhism, Christianity, like all these things are equal on these columns. And they're compared in these different religious ways. Makes it look like Christianity is just another option. But what he said is there is no other thing comparable to the church, right? This human polity, right? This visible um, society that's transcultural, this church militant, right? That's different. There's no other religion that has that. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying, look, this is unique. And what is the basis of that? The incarnation. And when I was teaching at SLU, I taught a class of philosophy of religion. And I kind of tested out this theory and see if they his idea that we don't know we don't know it because we're on the inside. We can't look at it from the outside. I asked these Catholics, or a lot of Catholics, there are different Catholics than a Franciscan because a lot of, some of them are nominal. I don't know how many, I don't want to guess, but a lot of them. And in this class, I said, so what is, what is the heart of Christianity? What is it all about? What's the number one idea? What's the number one heart of it? Everybody kind of looks at each other, kind of some awkward pauses. They say, uh, Jesus. And I was like, okay, a first century Jew, big deal. What about him? That's nothing special. They're like, "Uh, he died on a cross. I'm like, like thousands of criminals. Okay, a, a, a Jew that died on a cross. All right, who cares? Like, oh, he, he died for sins. I'm like, huh? That doesn't even make sense. What does that even mean? Right, what does that mean? A, a first century Jew died on a, in, in a Roman crucifixion, right? And it forgave your sins? I don't even, that doesn't even make sense, right? So then we got into other things like they didn't know about original sin, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't know what forgiveness even meant. I said, well, but why is this guy, the guy that, why does he have to, why did he die on the cross? Why did his death on the cross? They couldn't even get to the incarnation. Wow. They didn't even get to that until I elicited it from them, like Mm. pulled their teeth to get it out. That's how nominally Catholic some of them were. And yet they think they understand Christianity and Catholicism. It's such a huge problem. And many cradle Catholics need to step outside and think, well, yeah, let's look at some religions and let's look at them from the outside and then look at Catholicism in the same way.
1: Mm. Wow. How do you... And, you know, how do we bring that back? I I know that's one of the main projects here at Franciscan is like actually not just the students who come here, but affecting the Catholic culture in general for an intellectual renewal and intellectual culture. I I think
0: two things. I think we have to be brave and we have to ask about what's true. We have to ask ourselves. It's it takes bravery to ask, is this whole thing I'm doing made up?
1: Right. How do you spark that? Because, you know, for cat for Americans, it's, I don't want to get a good education. Uh, as you know, you want your kids to get a good education, go to a good college, maybe get a job, get a career, like, you know, attend mass. If you're a Catholic, let's say you have good intentions and you want your kids to be raised, raised Catholic, but like the intellectual side of it. Like, how do you get someone to be interested in questioning? Like, do I know Catholicism? Do I know Christianity? I think if like, the
0: person doesn't, is not already interested in, in whether or not what they're doing is true or whether it's just a big lie, right? It's just a made up noble lie, you might say to quote Plato. Mm-hmm. Um, so if nobody, nobody's interested in that, then the question is how do you get somebody interested in the truth? Right? Right. I mean, that's a bigger question. Then, then you need to right, be winsome and merciful, but you need to provide certain examples that are provocative, right? Like, well, what about these people, these Mormons? They're convinced it's true. Should they do the same thing you do? and not, not make an inquiry into whether it's true, because if they keep going the way they're going, then according to your doctrines, they're gonna to go to hell. You don't want people to go in hell, do you? You want people to be with God like you. Or, or what if somebody was raised as a Muslim, right? Don't you want them to ask whether or not their scriptures are reliable and consistent? Well, if you want them to ask it, then ask it for yourself, or else mm-hmm. you've got a double standard. And so you can kind of push on people to have a standard of truth that they would apply to other people. And if they don't adopt that, then they're adopting a relativism, a pluralism that says, well, it doesn't matter what your religion is. God's going to save you anyway. Then you're like, but that's not what God tells us. That's not, what we're taught. We're not taught that whatever religion you've got will save you if you're sincere. But, but I mean, would the
1: average Catholic mostly believe that kind of premise, like they're not thinking, you know, their next door neighbor, who's a, a nothing, an atheist, whatever. Um, like, do you think they're thinking, you know, this person may
0: not be saved or something like that. I don't think that the the typical nominal Catholic, you think that
1: feeds into the anti-intellectualism you could say, or the not peering into truth. Absolutely.
0: They they have this sort of pluralism, this religious pluralism that as long as you're sincere. Right. And I think there was a lot of um, mishandling of the teaching of Vatican two. I think that Vatican two has the answers we need if we understand it. But I think the problem is, is it was misapplied and misused. And so one of those is, is, is what it teaches about our conscience, in other religions and sincerity and whether we should proselytize or evangelize people of other religions Hmm. so i think we kind of adopted de facto a kind of relativism there and i think that we're afraid to share with people the good news because we think we're going to step on their toes or it's mean or intolerant or whatever and i think those are all lies Hmm. i think those are satanic lies i think we should share who we really love we really love Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't you tell somebody about somebody you love, that you're in love with to use that romantic metaphor, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we should have that love ultimately. If we're perfectly holy, we will. That's why the song of songs is in scripture, right? And why some of our praise songs have that element in it, right? That's a huge ideal to live up to, that is not Mm -hmm. easy. But the point is, is if we really truly do love Jesus Christ, then we will tell somebody about this person no matter what they believe. Even if they say they believe in Jesus Christ and the way they're acting, like, wait a minute, you're not loving this person. I love this person's willing to give this to you and you're tired of ignoring it. Hmm. We would be much more earnest. Sounds
1: like you're a a fanatic, Dr. Plato, a religious fanatic. fanatic. Totally. Oh my goodness. Trying to tell people about your faith.
2: (laughs) Why would you do that? Well, you know, (laughs) when I was working uh, over this last summer, I worked at a Catholic radio station back in California and I did some of the calls, took some of the calls for the rosary or just on regular basis, people would call into the radio station and I got multiple calls of people just seeking advice Mm. and seeking to want to know the truth because a lot of people will do it. They'll call a radio station because they know it's Catholic. They have people there that know what they're talking about, Mm -hmm. obviously. Um, And I kind of learned something over that summer is that a lot of Catholics right now, especially are so urgent for the truth because a lot of them just don't know what the truth is. And just receiving those calls of people wanting to know because there's so many of them that want to know the truth. They don't have the adequate teaching or they don't have just the people that are around them. It was just amazing to see kind of, kind of the forms that it comes in of people calling into a radio station, a legit radio station, wanting to know Mm -hmm. like this, I think the man was talking about abortion or something Mm -hmm. and he was just curious on all these things. And I had Mm -hmm. to explain to him about it. And But it just comes to show that I think, especially in Catholicism, we need to try to work harder to convey the truth to people. And that's not saying that many of us do or many of us don't, but I think that kind of, some people get scared off. We'll, we'll take, for example, the pre-sex scandals. Mm-hmm. I can understand completely why that would scare somebody off mm-hmm. from the Catholic Church. It makes sense, right? Um,
0: well, there's some pretty big sandals that Paul was talking about when his letters to the Corinthians.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's kind of old hat. yeah. Right? But when we find out about it, when we have kind of a golden age in our mind, when we find out about these, it's really disturbing. And Now it is kind of widespread in a, in, 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 in a different way, different than before, but it's still the church has always struggled right, with corruption. Like I think it was Eve, Evelyn Waugh who said, who was a convert, when some other convert said became, came into the church, he said, hey, welcome aboard. It stinks in here. And the church, is, <laughs> the church has always been on its last leg. But the point is, it's still here. It's still that's here. that's proof of its divine side. Yeah.
2: Well, I had a friend, or actually it was, I was listening to a talk and there was this um, Protestant school teacher. She was just Protestant. And- She was talking to a Catholic woman and she said, you know, the one thing I admire most about the Catholic church is that your saints and your church has just lasted through everything. Mm -hmm. It's last You, you are the religion that's been truly tested through everything and you've lasted.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: That's like a testament Mm -hmm. to the Catholic church. I mean, through all the saints that we've had, all the inspirational stories, Athanasius saving
0: the church Mm -hmm. from that heresy. I would add to that thought, I think that's a really good thought. And I think that that another thing that impressed me when I was thinking about the Catholic church and looking for what these are in traditional politics called the marks of credibility for the church, right? And I thought the church, if there is a doctrine, a dogma, you know, a deposit of faith that Christ laid down, then whenever that's stated, then what's stated next can never contradict it. And what's stated after that can never contradict what went before and so on. And so if I look into the Catholic church, what it declares to be in this deposit of faith, and there's any contradiction from what went before, then it can't be the deposit of faith. And you're not going to find those. You're going to find a few cases that seem like they might be those, but when you investigate them, they're not those. There's, there's literally none. I could find zero, right? And so it's not just that it survived in time, which you're right, but also its doctrine has survived. And the subsequent doctrines never contradict, haven't yet contradict the previous ones. Right? And so that's a mark of its credit, but that it's a divine teacher, right? That there's that Christ's um, office, right? A prophet, priest, and king, that those are all in the church, okay? Including his teaching office, right? Hmm. His prophetic office to teach the magisterium is that part of it.
2: Yeah. Hmm.
0: Really interesting. It's just people are thirsting for the truth. I was going to add to that yeah. too. I thought, I, I think you're right. And I remember when I was in high school, right? There was a famous song by an evangelical, an evangelical guy, right. And one of the lyrics was desperate for change and starving for truth. Hmm. And I think a lot of people naturally are starved for truth, especially in this culture where there's so much propaganda and ideology and false understandings Hmm. and just like flaky stuff. Right. But what I find in the Catholic church is that we don't take ownership, right? What we do is we want other people to teach us. We want Hmm. other people to tell us we want other people are in authority. So that's a good start, right? That's like what St. Paul says, that's milk we need to get past milk, right? And we need to have the meat. We need to eat the meat. And so, I, so we need to do it ourselves. So I think one of the biggest problems in our culture, not just in the Catholic church is we're not an ownership society. We don't take ownership for our own things, not just property and productive assets, but like our pursuit of the truth. We don't have to outsource that. We don't have to externalize that cost, right? Go do it yourself, so I asked a DRE once that I was talking to And I said, hey, do you te- do you have apologetic seminars in your, in, your, in your diocese? He said, every once in a while, I'll invite an apologist, apologetic speaker and people will come out in droves. And I said, oh really? I said, but do you like have classes where they, get, where they get trained to do apologetics themselves? He said, no, we never do that. I said, why not? He said, people don't want that. I, w- I was floored. I mean, is, is that how the teaching office of the church works? Is that we look at the market whether people want it, people need it. Whether they want people it or not. People need I'll. to be encouraged. That's what church is about is encouragement, right? Energy to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That involves investigating the truth yourself, right? Not just hearing it from Catholic answers. That's a good start. That's good. That's great. That will feed your desire for the truth. But if you never do it yourself, then you're discontent with milk. And you're one of those anti-intellectual fideists, right? That, 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 gives the permission to be a relativist to all the other nominal Catholics because reason has nothing to say. Hmm. It's Hmm. just faith. It's just authority.
1: Hmm. The fact that, yeah, we're just in this state where everything is, you know, like, like we've talked about earlier, like politicization, that seems to be like the goal. It's it's people's minds. Whenever they're thinking, you know, it is no longer religion being like, you know, you don't discuss religion or politics at the uh, dinner table. Now it's only you don't discuss politics because religion's just been morphed into that kind of that sphere.
0: That's right. It's um, a department of this bigger social setting, which is actually secular.
1: It's yes. Something. It's something under it. It's something right? under it. It's a You department. don't actually debate yeah. somebody on religion anymore. Cause it's like, no. why? So that's we're, just your personal yeah. belief. So, we're begging, so why deal
0: with that. That's it? right. Yeah. We're begging for religious freedom. Yeah. But the problem is, is that's a good thing to have. But our assumption is that we're a department within the state and they give us religious freedom.
1: Mm. And what really matters is if, you know, your candidates in office or something like that, yeah. whether or not you're going to mass and, you know, receiving the body and blood of Christ. Okay. Well, that's something cool, I guess. I don't know. But like, what really matters is if we win the house or if we win right. the
0: presidency yeah. or. I think there's um, more fundamental questions that we should ask as Catholic philosophers and theologians, <laughs> fundamental questions about the social order, right? The nature of the social order. I'm really interested in this right now. And, and I have some friends and my brother and other people I talk to about these questions because they're, they're really coming to the fore. I've talked to, you know, some of you guys before about my interest in, in distributism, right. As, yes. as a social, a social philosophy Um, Some people think, well, that's kind of passe. That was for like the British, you know, you know, Belloc and Chester and that's kind of over. But really all it was, was an application in their society of the principles of Catholic social teaching, Mm -hmm. which are perennial that applies to any culture, any time. Then I started thinking about more fundamental questions, like the nature of um, temporal power and the nature of spiritual power and how those things relate and how we should think that way. I started thinking about, well, where did we go astray? And, I, and one thing I go back to is the Reformation. And as a Catholic, I think that was a, that was a major turning point in the history of the world. And um, obviously, there's more than one Reformation, but I mean the Protestant so-called Reformations. And a book I really like is by a, an Anglican, a guy that was born Anglican, lived Anglican, died Anglican, and was buried in Anglican. His name's William Cobbett. Right? He wrote in the, early, the late 1700s and early 1800s. He was actually a figure that Belloc and Chesterton really liked um but he wrote and uh, was part of the Catholic emancipation movement in England hmm. so catholics couldn't hold offices right there were laws discriminatory laws against catholics hmm. and so there was there was an attempt to emancipate them he was an anglican and thought it was just unjust for this to happen but he wrote this book called the Cap, the the um the protestant quote reformation end quote um in England and Ireland and he put the quotes marks that's his title and hmm. the subtitle is um uh, a series of letters addressed to all sensible and just Englishmen. Hmm. And in that he declares some amazing things about the reformation that have been, that have been um, whitewashed in, in our history books. He himself wrote this in 18, I think it was 1824. He wrote this and he said, look, all the history books about the reformation that you, that you've seen your, you know, give to your kids, they're all trash, right? They were all written by the victors. He is a Protestant. Right? He is an Anglican. Remember that, mm. right? So this is not some just like pro Catholic guy, yeah. Right. Um, it's in Robert Bellarmine or yeah, anything. Yeah, exactly. And, and he said, at one point, he says that Henry VIII, right, is the greatest tyrant the world's ever seen, heathen or Christian at that point. I mean, he hadn't wow. seen Mao and Hitler and that, but at that point, yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting to compare Mao, right, and Hitler to what he shows what Henry VIII actually did. And so I think that's a, that's a key moment to reflect on because what Henry VIII did when he divorced himself from the church, right, he created state and he created church, neither one of which is state or church. So he created the church and the state in union with each other. And now we're all trying to separate those. I'm like, mm-hmm. but what, what, those are figments. That church isn't church and that state isn't state, right? So I think there's more fundamental issues to attend to in the social order. And I think it helps us to realize when we go all the way down to the bottom, that, our in, that, that the, um, the emptiness of these political ideologies, right and left, that they don't quite fit with Catholic social teaching. The yep. reason why is when you go all the way down to the ground, they have the wrong view of God and man, the wrong philosophical anthropology, the wrong theology. And if that's wrong, nothing else is going to work out.
1: How do you step outside of it then? That'd be the next question is like, how do you, as a Catholic steps outside of this whole, our liberal system that we have liberalism um, and then start, how do you even like start Here's to criticize it and get people to think about so, it in that way?
0: So, so um, Pius the 11th in Quadridissimo anno, which is 40 years after Rerum Navarum. The other thirteenth round of arm, which some people think is the beginning of Catholic social teaching, but if you go back before that, there's many doctrines in encyclicals because you wrote that are about like about the you know marriage as the foundation of society or the nature of the church or the nature of citizenship. Obviously, things that belong to Catholic social teaching. So, um, at any rate, Quadragesimo anno in 1930 was written by Pius XI, and and he said um, in the very beginning in that encyclical, because you know what we should all do. We should all have discussion groups of Catholic encyclicals in our parishes. Go do it yourself. <laughs> you tell me how many parishes there are where there's discussion groups of laity reading Catholic social teaching and trying to understand what it means. Mm. It is not complicated, right? An intelligent person, you do not have to have a college degree to understand this. You need to simply go on the Vatican website, download it, print it, read it as best as you can and talk.
1: Yeah. And read it in a group, yeah. you know, with your Let's other
0: Catholics. Start, take ownership of your own tradition. Mm. Quit asking mm. for it to be given to you from <clears throat> EWTN, right? Apologetics ministries and whatever else. Mm. Do it yourself. Yeah. Right. Don't ignore what those people are saying, but be the leader yourself. Mm. Be the church, right? Quit being so clerical. Post Vatican II, why are we so clerical? Mm. So weird. Theology only priests read that stuff, yeah. right? You know? Yeah. It's their responsibility <laughs> to do all this stuff for us. No, mm. it's not. It's mm. your responsibility. So I think that's a start. Yeah. It's, if you read, the, I started reading those this year again. It was like a breath of fresh air in all this political turmoil. How clear it is, how sound, cogent the arguments are. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's not complicated. And yet we're not. We don't. We don't have the language to even talk about these things anymore because we can't even read this anymore. It's simple. Just go do it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, everything's there for you. It's just we don't, you know, take that the time or. We don't want to put in the effort to actually read it and, you know, kind of interpret it with other people. Because I think another thing too is we have to really communicate with people, especially like in groups. Like it's good to do it on your own. It's good to learn about it on your own, but the more people, the better, you know, it's like we have to have
0: that sense of community. Corporate spirit, just like yeah. you said with sports. Yep. Why can't you have fun? Yeah. Have, a, have a night where you discuss Write these things, and then take ownership of your own entertainment. Mm. Right? Instead of pushing play on a, a CD player, right? Play the piano, like you know you can, right? Or at, at some of the Veritas Society events, people are playing. piano. We don't have to pipe in. Veritas
1: Society—that's right? that, what people yeah. should do. Go discuss yeah. these ideas in public. Yeah. The you know point I mean? is take
0: ownership though, yeah. of entertainment. Read a poem. Recite something. Put on a play. Right? Get yeah. the importance of being earnest and act it out. It's funny. It's great. Do it yourself. And take I think ownership. it's something
1: that people like yeah. interiorly know. Like they yeah. know you. You know these type of things. It's just it's one of those things. I feel like if you have somebody who's interested already in it and then they kind of get you into it, it just gets the snowball rolling. Like, that's right. Like I got into UFC because Kellen was super into UFC. And <laughs> now we're going to Vegas to watch Masvidal <laughs> Diaz number two. We're going to roll up in a Rolls Royce. Uh, anyways, uh, that's the dream. That's we're going to try to get there. See what happens. you were interested in that. And you're just interested in like love for it. It poured over. And I think with even, uh, that's just a human thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, yeah. And with the church as well, like, okay, all this political craziness is going on. Oh, you know, I get super into Catholic social teaching. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that together instead of just, you know, doing whatever else we're doing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if one person gets interested in it and actually takes it seriously and starts to read the stuff for themselves, it can really just snowball. Um, you know, one of my favorite parts in Dostoevsky um, in Brothers Karamazov, where Elder Zosima is this really old monk. Um, he's he's talking to his fellow monks before he dies. He's getting really old, and he tells them. He said, if you go to the parish eventually, or he said, I, all I say to you, I want you to read the Bible with your parishioners. Mm-hmm. He said, don't worry about any of the other, like I need to you know, worry about the church mm-hmm. building. I need to worry about how many masses, whatever. You can get so caught up in all this stuff. He said, just read them from the story of Abraham, Isaac, mm-hmm. and, and the sacrifice, read them from Genesis, read them from the prophets, read them about Christ and the gospels, just make a time sit down and read to them. And Mm -hmm. that'll be more impactful than any parish meetings you have or anything Mm -hmm. like that is taking the time and and making these small groups. And it doesn't, you know, just have to be the priest, but um, you as a Catholic layman can take that onto yourself and make an immense impact on
0: the people around you. I mean, think, think about the kind of the way that the ownership of the parish used to work. Why are these beautiful big churches here? Is it because the priest got some funding? It's because the parishioners wanted it to be like that. Mm. They're the ones who would often, the craftsmanship, the craftsmen themselves would often put their labor and money into it. Right. The, the parishioners themselves. Who would make the, um, the vestments? Oftentimes people in the community. Right. Who would clean, right, all the things. Right. Who would take, it wouldn't be father who's taking care of the parish. Right. Father would be the father. Right. And as anybody with a big family knows, the father doesn't do all the chores. Right. He does his thing. He guides things. He helps things. He husbands. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But he doesn't do all the work. The family also contributes to the home economy, but why can't our parishes be like that? take ownership. Don't just have father make a program. Go do it yourself. Say, I want to do this. Can I do this? And he'll say, wow, finally somebody asked. Thank you. (laughs) Now I'll have more time to do confessions. You know, it's like we don't take ownership. And I think it's a fundamental problem in our society. And I think it relates one to our affluence, right? Mm -hmm. When we become affluent, Right. When we become materialistic, even if we're not grossly materialistic, like we love Lexuses and you know, you know, eat uh, um, you know, escargot at, you know and caviar or mm-hmm. something like that, we still are like our material comforts. We like our nice trip.
1: scotch whiskey yeah. and stuff, you know. We can get too attached
0: to that. We <laughs> right. can get too attached to that. And, and we end yeah. up getting more isolated from each other, the
1: more affluence and wealth, you know, you live in a bigger house, you get farther away from people, you yeah. you drive to work, you drive home, you maybe yeah. know a few people, but like, do you know the people in your parish? Right. Like, do you know everyone in your parish? And right. in, in, uh, have you met people? Have you, do you talk with people after mass? Do you yeah. try and get involved in the parish? Like a lot of it is, it, a lot of it's just the local. Like, how are you making yes. an impact
0: just on your local parish? Bingo. It doesn't have to be some... Yeah. big, grand Catholic project you're trying to do. What if we started doing that and then we started doing the same thing in the political sphere? We did that in the temporal, you know, our relationship to the te- temporal power and temporal mm. sphere. But then we did that in our spiritual sphere and then we did it in the temporal sphere. Like makes Steubenville, yeah. you know? make make Steubenville, Steubenville great again. Yeah, makes Steubenville great again. again. <laughs> exactly. Was, was it ever great? No, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to make it I great. I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> but I think there's a localism principle. <laughs> right, right. But what I mean, is, it's also called subsidiarity. <laughs> mm.
2: What is more difficult, though, to do with regarding that Like religion or politics. I feel like politics would be so much more difficult just because there's so many different topics. Like, How can you possibly bring everyone together like a parish, but in politics? I mean, it it seems like it's virtually impossible because there's just so much that's so polarizing. You know what I mean? Is politics more polarizing than religion?
0: I mean, I think the relationship between politics and religion is actually intimate.
2: I mean, when right. Jesus
0: Christ said, said, I'm Lord, that was saying Caesar isn't. I mean, I like to think that you know, your politics is your religion or your religion is your politics. I think they'll ultimately go together. I think that it's a liberal myth, right? That we can compartmentalize religion and politics I know what you mean, though. Yeah, that we can privatize it. That Mm. that they're supposed to be kept apart. So you remember politics is up here with with the state sitting up here and then the church is like a department. It's like you go to church and you go to bingo club, Mm. whatever. You You go go to the Catholic
1: church, you go to the mosque, you know, it's Or you go to the bingo
0: club, whatever. It's just a club that Mm -hmm. human beings are interested in. But it really matters if you're a registered Republican or Democrat or, you know, that's what matters. But but I think to your point, right, is how do we do this when it's such a polarizing situation we're in? It just seems impossible. Why don't, what if we read... Lord of the Rings and talked about how that relates to what's good for a human community. Like the Shire, is that a good model or not? Right. And we, and we just get something that we agree to discuss that everybody's interested in. Everybody should be interested in that work. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing work. I think that's, you know, just as good as Homer in my mind. Um, and so you've got, and then you could say the Catholic social encyclical. So what Catholic wouldn't be interested in, right? Every Catholic should be interested in reading his own tradition. And if he's not, then what's he doing? <laughs>
1: We're making our own like Saruman's version of the, the Shire everywhere. Yeah. You know, yeah. everything's just industrialized exactly. and it comes through. We right. need to just go the through. Just, machines, as Tolkien yeah. said. Right. Yeah. Which is just invaded. And then people can't, are powerless to do that until yeah.
0: Frodo and them come back. And they're yeah. like, all right, Saruman, time to get you out of here. <laughs> so I think getting together and discussing things that aren't immediately polarizing would be the start. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I do think there needs to be some, like what if, for example, you started a reading group for Catholic social teaching in your parish. And then you made it like a class. Like you had to read X number of encyclicals, attend X number of things. and you got like a little certificate and you like graduated. You got, you did Catholic social teaching that mm-hmm. year. They and do then, that for secular yeah. stuff. Like then, business, yeah. you know, you have this exactly. course and then you graduate, you get a certificate. And then you get certain benefits and yeah. you can build that in and make it part of your little parish club and say, look, you got a graduate. So now you get to come talk to us about what you think about Black Lives Matter. And we'll listen to you. We'll listen to you for 30 minutes. You can say something now because you've earned the place. Mm-hmm. And then, somebody could bring forward a controversial topic and they would have naturally more respect because they got this little certificate. Yeah. Why not? Why couldn't you do I that? I think the Nothing big, the big
1: takeaway out of this, like it doesn't have to be something massive, no. just like a small step of I'm going to get more involved in my parish. I'm going to try and, you know, start this little Bible study group once a month. You know, maybe I'll have it in my house, Whatever like that small thing can be huge for a lot of people it just shows that you've taken the step and then that can
0: snowball from I, there i would add one more little thing that's just of interest to me is that i think it's especially important for men to do this right and for males to do this so one one i listened to an essay this summer by cs lewis there's an audiobook version of this big collection of essays and i've been listening to those it's been really interesting i've i've heard some essays of lewis i've never known about and there was one about um how the oxford uh Oxford undergraduate experience had changed that he had seen from when he was an undergrad to when he was teaching. And when he was an undergrad, he said there would be oftentimes small groups of males, just males, like 12 of them. And they would have intense discussions, like passionate, where people would kind of get mad, but they'd never be mad at each other, right? Because they were always speaking to the motion or speaking to the topic. And they would stay up like until 2 a.m. until they finished that topic. And he said, that was common. So then what happened when he was professor is all of a sudden now you have mixed groups and men and women have discussions in a very different way. Men can can get angry without feeling personal assaulted, right? It's more difficult for women to do that, right? And so when they had the mixed audience, what he says is the males that he'd observe, they would no longer argue strenuously for the truth of something. When there was ladies in, in their presence, they would act more. He said, you know, how can the male bird not show off his plumage in front of the female, so instead of having like hardcore logical arguments and fighting kind of like for the truth, there'd be like witticisms and jokes and fun stuff because the ladies are around. And so the intellect, right, and its interest in truth would be co opted, right, mm. by the kind of sexual tension involved in that situation. And I'm not, he, what, he's, he's not saying that shouldn't be. He just said, this is a difference I've observed. And he said, then what happened is instead of having these small groups of males that would often meet and stay up all night, you'd have big groups. We'd have a speaker come and then like 300 people would show up and listen to it. Mm. And so I think it's especially important for males, even starting in like junior high and high school, to have this opportunity, right, to, to do this. And I'm not saying females shouldn't have these discussions, but there's an advantage, right, in having it just be males, hmm. right? Like a men's group. Yeah, like a, a men's group. Men's men's group. group. And right. even for boys, right, to interact with older people, to be able to learn how you can argue, right, and you can learn how to be a gentleman. How can you learn how to be gentle if you never get angry?
2: Right? Yeah, that's, that's what gentleness good, that's is. That's a good it's point. control. <laughs> of the angry really good point. You
0: get angry when people oppose you and say that's not right. You you messed up your facts. That's not a good argument. And you learn how to be a gentleman and you learn how to love truth and you learn how to be philosophical. And by the time you get done you might be like, "Hmm, do I need to go get a liberal arts degree?" I've already got liberal art. I'll save a lot of money. Right? <laughs> right. So we can go Do it. I do I hear yeah. an argument for all male philosophy classes all in this? Philosophy. No, hey. but you do hear an argument for Like we should all Franciscan students who are listening to this should ask the question, why am I going to Franciscan University? Hmm. That's a a truth-centered question, right? What are you really after? What are you really in it for? Is it a job? That's something that's really important. It's something to care about. Is it learning how to care about wisdom? Being able to hear wisdom spoken, speak wisdom, read about wisdom, and write wisdom. Is that what you're interested in? Well, Hmm. if that's what you're interested in, you don't already have that, then you're in the right place. In all of your core classes, you should think these are more important than my major classes because Mm. that's way more important. Then I can go out into my parish when I'm done, right? And it can actually evangelize, do the new evangelization, how how it's meant to be, right? That's a key aspect of it is something I learned when I was a Baptist. One of my um, RAs said, and it really stuck with me, he said, you know, we always talk about as evangelicals preaching the gospel and saving souls, but we need to preach the gospel to ourselves right? We need to love wisdom and truth and Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, mind and strength. And if we do that, then we will have the witness of the truth. And that's what St. Francis famously said, you know, you don't necessarily need words. Those are great. Those are helpful, right? But if you're living it, right? If you're modeling it, then you are going to be able to do the new evangelization automatically in anything you do is automatically new evangelization.
1: And the best words are here on the Kel and Alex show. There you go. <laughs> and wow, this has been a killer podcast. Jeez, thank you so much for uh, for pleasure. joining us on it. And oh, thank uh, you so much. Oh really my goodness, it.
0: you guys are awesome. Keep it up. Hey, thank yeah. you. We'll
2: have you again on some.
0: We'd, we'd love to sure. again. Sounds yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, I'll have to do a beat down with Alex.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, once go. we get
0: our live our live
2: audience <laughs> show in
0: Puglisi. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. If we get um, that, that'd be really. Cool. What do you think about that, Don? Having a, a live live Sounds show. Sounds fun to me.
0: I think people would like it. Show I them, think show them what they it. can do. Yeah. They can do it like too. Anybody that, can do this. Yeah, mm-hmm. You guys aren't amazing. Anybody can. <laughs> <That's right.
1: laughs> uh, and with that, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you all for listening uh, to the Kel and Alex show. We go live Thursday evening, 6 to 8 PM. Uh, there, there's going to be a special podcast with Clement Harold coming up pretty soon. So look out for
2: that. And, uh, yeah, that's it for us. Have a good night guys.